Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Guy here. You're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MRKT Call. It's a daily video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we're joined by our friends Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young, that's EY of SoFi, for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page so you never miss an episode. Tuesday, the 13th of June, market call, 1 p.m. on the East Coast. That's Dan Nathan. I'm going to tell you folks something. We got a special guest. Maybe Dan will tease it or we'll just sort of drop it on you, but stick around because he is legendary. I mean, the Mount Rushmore, Dan, is that correct? The Mount Rushmore of volatility trading, that would be Mike Coe. You call him Hot Coco. Coco beware. Hot Coco. Coco beware. Mike and I... Did CNBC's options action together. He started in January of 2009. I started in April of 2009. I did it until December of 2019. I think he has been on 98% of the shows Friday at 5.30 on CNBC. That would be options action since, it's astounding, since January of 2009. He is the CIO of Optimize Advisors. We're going to get to all of that. He is going to just kind of drop a whole heck of a lot of knowledge on us about what's going on um, as far as volatility in and around the equity space and uh, maybe give us a little insight on these zero days to expiration options, guys. Yeah, that's why we... Yeah, yeah, that's why we wanted to have him on because yeah. it's been a lot of questions. I don't understand it, and it's a good day to do it on a CME day. By the way, today's market call is brought to you by CME Group, Dan, where risk meets opportunity. Of course, our data provider is FactSet. Lots to talk about. Uh, S&P up three quarters of a percent. NASDAQ off to the races yet again. I think the market's got itself geeked up on the back of the CPI. Yeah, exactly. The CPI report this morning, you know, again, inflation is going lower. We've talked about that. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I think people are really getting themselves a little overexcited. But we want to talk about something that happened yesterday, Dan, because we actually had a lot of fun. We did have a lot of fun. We were in the Sirius XM Radio's global headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. Um, you and I brought our market call to Sirius XM Radio Business Channel 132. That will be Mondays, every Monday at 12 noon Eastern. Uh, I was also told by a friend we might as well drop. It's also 9 a.m. on the West Coast, yeah, guy, just so you know. I mean, like, so if it's noon uh, Eastern on Mondays, and we took lots of calls. That's the whole point of the thing. We had... Uh, you know, viewers of our programs, listeners of our programs calling in on Sirius XM is awesome. I thought it was great. I enjoyed the format. The hour went by really quickly. We're able to sort of drop in some your Pearl Jam, my 
oh, Led man. Zeppelin, yeah. some sports references. We it was fun, and I think the audience enjoyed. It. We're getting some great feedback. So again, next week is in fact June 19th, which is a holiday, but we're gonna do something special for that day. But to the extent that Mondays are not holidays and they're normal days, we will be in the studio uh, at Sirius XM each Monday at noon, taking your calls and. Who knows what this turns into, but it was a lot of fun yesterday. That's for sure. A lot of fun on, on Monday on Juneteenth. We're actually going to have a special drop an episode. That's going to go on serious business. One thirty-two at noon. So check that out people and send us any emails you want. Maybe we'll answer your questions on that special drop. All right, guy, let's get to it. Um, you used to say, and, and again, this is on the eve of the fed decision. Um, we know the CME fed watch tool is pricing basically after that CPI print this morning, um, you know, 5% chance that they raised 25 basis points that just a few weeks ago was a 60% probability. So basically inflation coming down um, faster, you know, than expectations is giving the fed cover to pause, which is pretty odd though, to me that the July expectations um, are still um, like, you know, better than, than a coin flip, right. That they're going to raise 25 basis points. So this is the back and forth we're going to have now. It's, it's just amazing. Guy, talk to me a little bit about the psychology of this. We obsess over the next meeting. Then we get to the eve of the meeting. And then we just start obsessing over the next meeting here. And it just seems like a little much. And the stock market, again, maybe this is great. Maybe the stock market is fine. I mean, when's the last time you could remember a raging stock market in the face of interest rates where they are or where relative to where they had been? And you got to go back to the 90s. And I just remember the late 90s. And I remember this the bubble that was inflating then. And a lot of this feels very similar in a way right now. There are a lot of corollaries. I mean, I think for everybody, they can they can have parallels to a lot of different. I mean, there are people that go back to the early 1900s. So people will talk about the mid 1950s, you just mentioned the late 90s, obviously the early 70s has some corollaries in terms of inflation. But to answer your question, I mean, the amount of um, the speed with which we got to this interest rate, I think is somewhat unprecedented. Now, the market is rejoicing, apparently, because inflation is coming down. And we've said inflation will come down. Maybe it's coming down faster than I thought, but that's not even the point. You know, if you want a metaphor, if you want some sort of analogy, there was this raging fire at this building um, and they brought in basically every engine company from the surrounding area and they dropped an extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily uh, large amount of water and fire suppressant on this fire. And they finally were able to tamp it down. Everybody's cheering. But I think at some point people would say, holy shit, look at all the damage the water has done. Now we have to fix that. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, the fire is out, I guess, in terms of inflation. But the underlying damage as to how they got it down is yet to be felt and yet to be acknowledged. And I think that's what I'm struggling with here in the market. Now, at 43.75, the S&P says, what are you talking about? Everything's fine. Um, we're going to be off to the races. I would submit that we're going to feel the aftermath of these 500 basis points of hikes at a certain point. I'm shocked that we haven't gotten there yet. I'm the first to say it. But yet here we are. And that chart in the S&P, the minis, Tell us the whole story. We're through that August high of last year. Uh, we'll see where we go. I guess the next level is the spring high, which probably gets somewhere north of 4,500. I'm not saying we're getting there, but that yeah. if you're looking for levels, that's what it is. And we had Julian Emanuel on last night. And I think his target, Dan, you probably know better than me, I think was 4,500-ish or so. 4,450. He says we could be there by Father. We'd get there maybe by 4th of July. So, I mean, clearly things are setting up that way. 
Well, I mean, listen, we're, we're about 10% above that 200-day moving average that's flattened out here. And you and I have made this point on many occasions, okay, after we had that tight consolidation um, in April into May, um, you know, that chart looked constructive. If you could take all of those kind of fundamental qualitative inputs out that you and I spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you'd say to yourself, that looks like the sort of thing that spent a lot of time making a series of lower highs and lower lows. It had a crescendo last October, and then it started making a series of higher lows, right? And higher highs. And then you mm -hmm. had that consolidation. So I get it. Let's back this chart out of the minis, um, you know, a, a little bit here. And again, you see what's happened. I think Carter might call that like a little bit of um, a couple cup and handle or so. I want to pull up though the RSP, that is the ETF that tracks the equal weight um, S&P 500. We spent a lot of time talking about the concentration of those top 10 names that make up 25, 26% of the S&P 500. That is an index of 500 stocks. So you have 10 of them that make up quarter of the weight. And they've done a lot of the heavy lifting. On average, those stocks are up about 40% uh, on the year. They are basically seven, $8 trillion in market cap. That looks different. You know what I mean? Like that are, that equal weight guy looks um, a little different. So if people are talking about if you're bullish right here and you're buying this move, um, they could toggle back you know, to the breakout in the S&P in, in the market weight. Um, if you're buying that, you're making a bet here that all the laggards are going to catch that's up. Right. I mean, that's it, right? And that's what we talked about. Listen, we have that conversation for a while now. The bull case is, well, there are a couple different um, points for the bull case, but one of them is the fact that these laggards will catch up. And the fact that the, un the, the equal weight is underperformed, they would look at that as a good thing because they think there's room for some of these underperformers to get on their collective forces. We'll see. You know, I think I'm pretty, I think we understand where I stand in this whole thing. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. And the problem, of course, is the ones that have outperformed those 10 to 12 names that have completely outperformed. It would be one thing if the valuations were still compelling. It's a completely different thing when the valuations have really, especially many of these stocks compared to their historical norm, are significantly higher, not to mention they're much higher, obviously, than the broader market. So if you think that somehow they can continue to grow into their valuation, I guess that's okay. If you think the laggards will catch up, that's fine as well. I just don't think either one of those things are going to happen. Yeah, and, and there's not a, a spot where this is more acute. If you look at the NASDAQ E-mini futures here, the NASDAQ 100, and you look at this now, you know, it's more than 20% off its 200-day moving average. It's off, uh, obviously, um, you know, considerably more from those lows, like 40, you know, 2%. Um, or so. And, and again, those 10 stocks that we just mentioned, the S&P 500 that make up a quarter of the weight, they make up close to 50% of the weight of the index of 100 stocks. So we know what's going on here. And I just want to kind of quickly highlight, you know, um, the Russell 2000, right? Apple is nearing $3 trillion in market cap. It's actually red on the day on my fact set screen here. Um, and Apple is equal to the weight of the entire Russell 2000, mm -hmm. which is the, you know, 2000 small cap stocks. Now, you and I highlighted the fact that this thing does look a bit more constructive. And then rather than chasing a NASDAQ, and we talked about this early last week, if you're looking to kind of prune some gains in the NASDAQ because you think it's getting a little frothy here, this was a place that made some sense. You see that uptrend that's been in place since October. that um, really has not been able to get out of its own way. It's below its 200-day moving average for the better part of the last couple of months when the S&P was basing to break out. This thing broke out. It broke out to a level here. It could be a tough level. You could have a back and fill towards that 200. But how are you thinking? about the Russell, because this is the sort of thing that 
people who are inclined to chase right now and don't want to go after the shiniest things might find their way to the Russell 2000. And this is the futures here. And that looks like a fairly constructive chart, especially if we get a little back and fill towards that 200 day. So a couple things uh, before we get to Mike. Carter actually talked about this last week, the, the potential for the Russell to outperform the broader market. This chart illustrates exactly that. You mentioned it as well. I mean, you talked about not necessarily a pairs trade, but if you're looking to take profits in something, the place maybe you want to start layering into is the Russell, in this case, the E-mini Russell 2000 futures for the CME, which all worked. Okay, but let's just sort of break it down quickly and try to figure out what's going on you know, below the surface or underneath the surface. What's happened here is regional banks have gotten off the mat, and they're obviously a large component of this. And that's what's driven this. They're, the Russell is not being driven by the economy magically getting better, which should be the case. This is being driven by the fact that many of these regional banks are bouncing in the absence of bad news. Now, Doug Cass, who is listening or watching right now, is quick to point out, you know, some of these regional banks still have some issues. He pointed out something uh, with U.S. Bank Corp. And I talked about it yesterday on, I think, Fast Money. Key Corp, the CFO, talked about net interest income uh, being sort of marginalized and being under pressure. And that stock was under pressure yesterday. So my position is I don't think the ills of the regional banks have been cured. The stocks have bounced, but the problems persist. But that um, bounce has led to where we're seeing in the Russell right now. So in short... I would be looking at this downtrend line to be taking some money off the table. Yeah, no, and that makes sense to me. And and, and I think you and I kind of were very clear about this. You have to dollar cost average. I mean, like 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 the, no one's going to be able to pick the point in time in which you know what I mean. Like you're you're going to just say that was it for the Russell. You're going to like initiate a position last week. You may buy a little bit more as it gets to resistance here. You may buy some of it back and fills to the two hundred. I mean, that's how you have to trade with an intermediate term um, time horizon. The last thing I'll just say. Um, you know, if you're thinking about like the breadth and, and the broadening out, you better see energy, which is down in the year, the XLE, if you think about it. You better see the XLF, which is the banks. You, you better see them start picking up their heads a little bit here because those are the two sectors to me that I think are maybe probably the best barometer for the health of the economy. And you talk about that lag of those interest rate hikes, guy. I mean, that's, you know, two areas where I think it's probably mostly felt here. So to me, until those start to confirm what's gone on in the in the in the NASDAQ heavy or the big tech heavy, you know, S P and NASDAQ, I, I I'm not there yet. So um, and you know what, maybe we have somebody who's uh, a bit sharper than us. Like the sort of guy who, when he they, wears a blazer- who, Whoever we, by definition, they can yeah. only be sharper than us. Yeah, but he's us. the sort of guy where he wears a blazer, he's got the patches on the side. Some people may call him the professor of, of the options world here, but that would be Mike Coe. He is a CNBC contributor. He is the OG of options action, and he's still doing it. CIO of Optimize Advisors and our good friend, Michael, welcome to Market Call. Hey, it's great to be here with you guys. Thanks, man. Well, listen, Mike. we'd love to get your take, like, like on, on kind of what we just said about the macro, like the major indices. You follow not just, you know, um, the volatility markets, but you are an investor. You are an active trader. You're in the volatility markets. You traded commodities for a long time. Just give us your general macro thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting what you guys were just talking about, the small caps, uh, Russell versus the S&P, and it's obviously being carried by, you know, a handful of heavyweights. Uh, on the screen behind me, I'm just monitoring a, a modest position that I have, uh, long RSP, short SPX. 
Uh, so for those who don't know, the RSP is the equal weight S&P 500. Um, and of course, a, a trade like that is essentially a bet that there's going to be some convergence between the most recent rock star winners that we've been seeing in the market, whose valuations, by the way, when we look at the S&P trading around 20 times, that tells you only part of the story. Um, you know, some of the highest flying names, these, the valuations, people should just be aware of this. Names like NVIDIA, we have seen these types of valuations before, and we have seen it from companies that did change the landscape and ultimately became extremely successful, but they didn't prove to be such exceptional investments. Uh, I know both of you guys will remember Cisco, late 90s. That thing was trading uh, very much, actually, the same kind of numbers that NVIDIA is trading now. Uh, it was you know, it was basically the poster child, that and Sun and a handful of others for the internet. And that company has grown uh, in terms of their revenues and their profits and so on, probably threefold since then, but it has grossly underperformed the S&P. Um, you know, we're talking about probably 180 base, 180% lower returns over that uh, 25 year period um, from their peak, which, uh, you know, I think was in, in 1999. So that's what I would really urge people to think about. Um, you can have all of the belief that you want that NVIDIA is going to change the world. I'm sure they, they are. They build great products. I care what GPUs go into the machines that I have surrounding me right now. Uh, I can name which ones they are. I can remember when they, those things were trading over MSRP just to put those things in your box. But um, these valuations are, are pretty difficult. The other thing I would say is, look, um, the bond market has been signaling a recession for a long time. And the commodity markets recently, you know, people are sitting here saying, oh, great, you know, inflation is coming down. And if you take the and commodity prices have been dropping. Well, I just want to remind folks that um, while that's good for inflation numbers and the core inflation, which was ex food and energy, actually wasn't so phenomenal. But if you take a look at declining uh, commodity prices, that is not uh, usually a harbinger of good things to come economically. Mm -hmm. uh, pay attention to energy, pay attention to industrial metals. Everybody was expecting these things to come to life when China reopened. That's the real story. And uh, what happens? They reopen. You know, nobody really trusts China numbers that much, but even the numbers that they give, which are probably optimistic, aren't that great. So that's a, that's a difficult place to press longs if, if you ask me. And I'm not net short the market. I should make that point. But I am, you know, I am long smaller cap underperforming companies, and I'm short the S and P, and I'm actually short QQQ. I should say that as well. We got a question. I want to look at rates in a second, but we got a question from one of our viewers. Um, can you ask Mike what he thinks about the VIX and the VIX one day? I think that's what I'm reading. Hitting the same level yesterday, should we expect the one day to be higher than the 30 day going forward? Now, if you could, if you can take a couple minutes here, Mike, because we have some time, just to sort of explain what you think's going on with these zero data expiry options and, and maybe over more importantly, the ramifications of the impact they're having on the broader market and maybe the VIX as well. Yeah. So zero DTE options, this is, this is really interesting because a huge percentage of the, of the flow that you see on any given day is taking place in there. I think for uh, the SPX index, for example, something like 40% of all of the options contracts trading are zero data to expiration. So that's basically, for those who don't know, those are basically one day options. Uh, there's a lot of demand for these products. Um, it's pretty handy if you're just trying to trade 
uh, daily events. I have heard people speculate that the bulk of this flow is people just buying really cheap lottery tickets, trying to make a punt one way or the other. Uh, the vol surface doesn't necessarily indicate, and the vol surface basically is the price, the implied volatility of every expiration out in time. Um, we do see spikes in it. We have a huge spike in it right now. So, for example, the options that expire tomorrow uh, are trading at over 20% implied volatility. That's on an annualized basis, with the VIX at 14 and change, and weekending options. You know, so if we just take a look at uh, what the market's expecting after the news comes out. Uh, very low double digits. Uh, these are levels of volatility, by the way, that people should also bear in mind. These were volatility levels we saw in mid-2017. End of 2017 was the lowest implied volatility that uh, I can recall, and it was followed by a really sharp uptick. We had the Volmageddon incident. And the reason I bring up Volmageddon is because a lot of people have suggested that all of this flow in short-dated options is going to create a similar dynamic, that you get uh, you know, that everything is very stable, everything's very calm. Um, and, you know, basically premium selling can actually contribute to that. And then suddenly, when you get uh, an exogenous event, that basically builds up tension. It's like a coiled up spring. And then you get an incident like Balmageddon. I don't think that zero DTE options are quite the same as that. Part of the reason for this is a lot of that flow is is happening in cash settled options. And that may not seem like it makes a lot of difference whether an option settles into cash or whether it settles into the underlying. But if something settles into cash, if you are short the option, you can just wait until that thing expires and then it's going to trade like a swap. You either owe or you collect and that's it. Um, if you are short options that have a deliverable, that creates a very different dynamic. You actually have to cover that security. You can't just let that thing go away on its own and take your take your medicine. So if you're dealing with stocks that are hard to borrow, short squeeze type potential names, we've, we've certainly seen plenty of those. I think of names like Carvana currently, but almost every Reddit re rebellion meme stock probably uh, qualified there. And even if you settle into something simple, like one of the ETFs, SPY, Qs, whatever, IWM, uh, you, have to, you have to actually resolve that with trading. And, and that's where um, that kind of activity can create more volatility. I think zero day to expiration options are probably not going to can, you know, contribute to a Volmageddon event. But that doesn't mean we won't get a sharp vol spike when bad news comes out. I so think Mike, that's still possible. Talk to us a little bit um, how you're thinking about this summer. Okay, so we're, we're having this, like like I'm looking at my, my fact set screen today, and, and really the only major NASDAQ name I see down on the day is Apple because it was downgraded at UBS and, and the stock is at an all-time high, so people are taking – um, some profits, but you know, Nvidia is up three percent. Um, Tesla is up fourteen days. Uh, Doug Cass sent us a, I, I think it was a note from Peter Bookvar, a friend at Bleakley Advisors, talking about the RSI in 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 Tesla is at like eighty eight or something, reminding us that it can only go to a hundred. That's the relative strength, right? And so. We see this concentration. We've talked about that a lot. We look at the outperformance of those um, those huge names, right, and what they've done to the major market uh, cap weighted um, indices. What does it mean for Vol? As we get to the end of Q2, it feels like we could have a bit of a markup into the end of June, barring any you know kind of bad news, especially after what comes out with the Fed tomorrow. If it's kind of a um, dovish pause, you could see the S and P you know back at 44.50 again. And we're just talking about that. Um, a little bit, but then we get into Q2 earnings. And that's mm -hmm. the thing that makes me 
pretty kind of nervous about the expectations for a lot of these names and how far they've come, where valuations are. We haven't even talked about rates. One of the reasons why all these um, high valuation tech stocks started selling off in mid-2021 was the expectation that the Fed to battle inflation, ultimately they were going to basically confront this issue. They were going to raise rates and it made a lot of these valuations look really egregious. Well, they look egregious again. And if you tell me that they pulled forward all of this excitement about whatever you think any company has an opportunity integrating large language models or jet of AI into their current businesses and then commercializing it in the near future, I think we're going to have a disappointment, you know, across the board in Q2 and Q3 guidance. So talk to me about what the VIX is saying to you here when you look at kind of the forward uh, appearance of the curve here and how this might set up for our listeners here or our viewers, how they might be thinking about protection or swapping into, let's say, defined risk strategy. Yeah, this is a great point. And it actually goes to something that you guys were talking about even before you had me on uh, at the beginning of this conversation, which is that basically, you know, the water is being carried by a handful of stocks, right? Um, and when we think about volatility, so what is the VIX? Uh, the VIX is simply, and it's a measure, it's not the measure, it's, it's a measure, it's just one of the ones that gets cited most often. But it is a measure of the 30-day uh, implied volatility for the S&P 500. That's the way to think about it. And every single day, it's the next 30 days. So it's really a rolling measure of time. And one of the things that people often get confused about, they say, how is this possible? You know, the, the VIX is going down, there's so much uncertainty. Well, think about how much uncertainty do I have looking out 30 days? Well, as we go into earnings season, you know, the volatility of an index is going to be a function of the volatility of the underlying stocks, how big they are, and how related to one another they are, okay? So the biggest stocks have the biggest impact because of the largest weights. Um, if they don't have a catalyst coming up in the next 30 days, their volatility contribution is gonna be relatively low. Uh, and if they're anti-correlated with a lot of the other constituents in the index, similarly, they're not gonna be making a huge uh, contribution. So um, what you need to take a look at is the calendar of earnings. Look out at the calendar of earnings and see um, you know, what's coming up. And if you take a look at that, we have a chart of it here. And you can see that we haven't really gotten into it. If you're looking 30 days out, you haven't really incorporated that into the VIX. So your expectations of volatility, pay attention to the calendar. And what you're going to find is that the VIX is going to start swallowing up more and more catalysts and they are going to contribute more and more to the volatility. As the big names, you start seeing their earnings come into frame, the implied volatility of those stocks in the short term is going to rise. The implied volatility of the S&P is going to rise. Now, right now, we really have only one thing contributing, and it's what you guys were talking about. It's rates. It's inflation. It was the CPI and PPI numbers today. It's the FOMC tomorrow. And actually, within the VIX, we we have you know the next big thing to look at from the inflation front, which is PCE. So the PCE deflator, of course, is the Fed's generally speaking, it's their preferred measure, and that comes out at the end of the month. Um, but you know, as earnings come into frame, if that's essentially what I think people ought to be taking a look at, I think that you know my two cents. But using options right now to me feels exceptionally cheap. Um, now the interesting thing about the price of options is that it's often most painful to buy them when they are cheap because 
you sort of get down to a floor and people just don't want to sell them down. And so that gap between realized and implied volatility gets kind of high and you, you buy these options and they're just kind of decaying away on you. Uh, even if you get the direction right, but it's not really moving aggressively, uh, it can be painful. But my expectation, I'm using September options myself, trying to give myself enough time. But I, I think there will be other shoes to drop. I think earnings, as you indicate, could be the catalyst. Um, and I think you know people are also going to recognize that you know we we have these cross currents in the inflation picture. The difference between four percent and two percent in in inflation is actually a big difference, folks. Um, so I, I would expect to hear hawkish tones. They would love to talk inflation down if they could. It would be a hell of a lot less painful um, than implementing hard policy to make it happen. That's for sure. Mike, we're going to have you back for sure. Thanks for joining us today. I know you've got a lot going on, but I think the audience gleaned a lot from your comments. So you're the guy to have on not only days like this, but just sort of the environment we found ourselves in. So thanks for joining us, Coco Beware. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it, man. Um, that, that's great. That's great stuff. I mean, guy, you know, it's funny. You know, Mike and I <clears throat> talk a lot during uh, Fast Money. Uh, on, we're texting or, or, or chatting, and, and he's waiting in the wings to do um, his hit. And, um, you know, it's always great to have somebody who's literally been in those pits for as long as he has, kind of the way we get you um, on the commodities, too. So um, his his intel was excellent. Guy, let, let's talk rates here, okay? So, um, you know, we've been talking about this in, in, inverted yield curve. Um, we have this Fed meeting tomorrow. Um, you know, it's basically, you know, a 5% probability of a raise, but we look out to July, the CME FedWatch uh, tracker is saying a really strong likelihood of 25. That could change, okay, if some of this data continues um, to come out and uh, come in just the way it changed um, here in June. My question to you is, what do you do with Treasury yields here at this point? Especially if the, even, it, it goes back and forth between, okay, we might be in a higher for longer regime. The, the hikes might be done, but we might be in a higher for longer regime. H how do you trade this market that had been very volatile? Um, it seems to be calming down a little bit. We've, we've tracked the, the move index a little bit. It seems like that is kind of like at least abated a little bit. W what are you thinking here in rates and what's the next big move? Well, you know, if you look at this, I think we're still in this downtrend from the fall of last year and you can see it. I mean, your eyes will take you to that all that not all time high, that high we saw in the fall, that subsequent high we saw in February and where we are now. That's a pretty well-defined downtrend. So what does it mean? It means we're probably, in my opinion, topping out here in the short term in rates. In other words, I think there's a chance that 10-year yields go back down and head back down towards three and a half, you know, somewhere between 335 and three and a half, which probably will coincide with the lows we saw earlier this spring. So that's how I look at it. Now, why will that happen? Well, because of things that Mike said, you know, commodities coming in, it might be great on the inflation front, but it speaks to a softening economy. A softening economy speaks to, almost by definition, rates going lower. Of course, the problem is going to be, and this is what we've talked about for a while, 10-year yields can come down. I think that two-year yield is going to stay pretty resilient, which means the yield curve is going to continue to invert, which it's been doing over the last month or so. So that's how I look at it here, and that's how I would be trading it. All right, fair enough. Um, and then let's just hit a couple other things on the macro front here. Crude oil, you know, is bopping around. It seems like every day I look up, um, it's up three percent. It's down three percent, right? And but but again, it's definitely been in a downtrend. If we want to just mm -hmm. kind of look at the the chart from the start of 2022, 
um you know we had that you know that that massive spike as as tanks were rolling into ukraine and then we had another spike a few months later in the summer um but since then i mean you know the, the crude oil the back has been broken of the inflationary sort of um you know like framework for this thing and you know right here it seems like there is resistance downward sloping 200 day we see that downtrend here um 70 seems to be um a little bit of a level and you'd say well that's good man you know like if if, if a lot of companies who've been really dealing with higher input costs figuring out how to pass them through to consumers or businesses of the like here this going lower is helping out a great deal does it say something about the broader economic landscape both here and abroad I think so. And that's the point I made in, in, that, in that comments I made right before. I think this all leads to, yeah, I guess it's great if for input costs, but why is it happening? It's happening because things are slowing down. Economies are grinding lower. And that's not only happening here, that's happening across a swath of different developed economies. I mean, that just is what it is. And what's interesting is the fact that if you look at it, yeah, the trajectory has been lower, but since December-ish, We've effectively gone sideways to slightly lower. We had that little spike in April, but effectively, you know, we've been sideways to slightly lower. Crude really hasn't moved. You've seen some vacillation, obviously, in terms of the underlying equities, um, but they seem to be getting back on their horse a bit today. OIH, for example, today's having a decent day. So there's so many different cross currents here. But to answer your original question, this chart clearly doesn't look good. That last announcement from Saudi Arabia lasted all about 24 hours, that spike, and we've given it entirely back. I still think there are probably some uh, arrows left in their quiver that they're going to fire in attempt to get the price higher. Um, But right now, it's very hard to make a bullish case for that commodity, crude oil specifically. Yeah, and I want to quickly hit gold because this is one that we've talked about on CMA Tuesdays, uh, CME Tuesdays market call here. And we were looking at like a 1950 buy level in and around that uptrend, right? And we were kind right of there. looking for a move back. So so like we're just bringing it up because we want to kind of track it. Um, it's it's kind of either side of that uptrend. You see where that 200-day moving average is down there, um, you know, at 18 18- 50 or so. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, is this related to the dollar? Is it related to inflationary? I think it's important to throw up that Dixie chart, the DXY, uh, the US dollar index of what 50% of that or so guy um, is the euro. It had a nice little move. It's basically um, consolidated a little bit at that downtrend from those highs made last um, fall. And, and we could also say that for US multinationals, I mean, the dollar coming in, not a horrible thing, right? So there's a lot of things that you could point to that are supportive of large cap valuations, maybe, you know, pricing in soft to no landing or so, but the dollar coming in a little bit would be one of them if we saw that back towards 100 in the Dixie. Gold's interesting. It's going to be, gold's going to move to, listen, that's a dumb thing to say, but (laughs) depending on the tone of this Fed meeting, gold's going to have a move. So if they come out hawkish, I think it's probably going to be um, deleterious, as a great Dennis Gardner would say, to the price of gold. I think gold might get through that up. If we could put the gold chart, uh, the chart back up real quick. You know, a hawkish Fed probably takes us through that trend line. You know, if they, if they're, if if the market perceives them to somehow be dovish, I think that's where gold holds this trend lines and gets back on its horse. So I think the rhetoric around tomorrow's um, meeting is going to really tell the next probably 15 to 20 percent in terms of gold either we're going to look at that 200 day moving average around 1850 or i think more likely we're going to sort of ratchet higher so we'll see how it plays out dan 
All right, last one before we get out of here because this is definitely a macro asset. This is let's look at the Bitcoin futures that trade on the CME here. And, and again, you know, I think people were pretty excited. There was a lot of "I told you so" on the um, on the crypto Twitter a little bit, guy when it when it overtook thirty thousand for the first time in uh, well, I don't know a year and a half or so. Um, and it's you know quietly kind of come in back to this twenty six thousand level um, or so. You see this on a one year basis. This kind of interesting, you know, near-term support. If you back it out, this is not a log chart, but on a five-year basis, you see that 13,000 level was, you know, that's a level, right? It was a breakout level from uh, late 2020. It was the, the high from, you know, the year prior or so. It's a level that we bounced off of, um, you know, late last year. Um, again, let's toggle back between the one year and the five year. We're at a kind of critical level. And, and again, a dovish Fed, is that the thing that, that gets Bitcoin going again? Or is a hawkish sort of statement, higher for longer, the thing that maybe has this thing retesting its 200-day moving average? It's, it's, this, that's a re, it's the interesting, the decoupling we've seen from gold. I think you're right to bring up the fact that it's going to come down to Fed rhetoric. But there seems to be other things going on now that I can't necessarily... Listen, obviously, some of the things going on with Coinbase and, and the some of the uh, headlines we're getting from... Uh, Gary Gensler and stuff is not necessarily helping. So I think there are other factors at work here. But I've thought for a while, and I'll continue to think that all Bitcoin is is sort of an overlay as to what central banks are doing. And what's hurt it, I think, is the fact that ECB continues to be extraordinarily hawkish. Bank of Canada, we talked about, not that that's all that important, but again, surprise rate hike from them. And if you get a hawkish Fed term uh, tone tomorrow, I think that could be the next leg lower um, for Bitcoin. So again, tomorrow's going to be a fun day to listen to and watch and then see what happens on the back of it. All right. Well, you know where we're going to be at one o'clock Eastern tomorrow, guy. We're going to be right here. On yeah, the we are. Call. We're going to have Carter Braxton Worth joining us. And you know what's really interesting? Because we had Mike Coe on today. That was the, that was the threesome. It was the three musketeers for like nearly 10 years. We did that options action with that. What's uh oh uh, Melissa TV's uh, Melissa Lee. Oh TV's Melissa Lee and she 30 Fridays. Yeah. Um, but that was great by Mike. That was really helpful. And again, you know, you and I like to try to sound as smart as we can as often as we can, but we're never gonna sound as smart um as Mike Coe, especially on complicated topics like that. So it's great to have him on the CME day because when we think about, you know trading futures and, and when you think about the richness right of a, a, an underlying index or something like that going and looking at the options market sometimes is really helpful to think about you know what what future you're buying and where you're placing stops and how you're thinking about um you know directionally expressing those sorts of views and one of the reasons why we like talking about futures is our ability to use stops to move those stops to help manage risk so to me, um, great. We kind of surrounded the trade, as we say. Guys. I like surrounding the trade. And by the way, I teased this on the Twitter earlier. Uh, the Denver Nuggets surrounded the NBA championship last night with one of the most unlikely heroes. If you look at pictures of uh, Jokic when he was a young man, you would have said there's there's zero chance that forget about an NBA player. I mean, this guy wasn't going to be a professional bowler. And now look at him. He's probably he guys like LeBron, um, guys like Jimmy Butler, all the top players in the league. Durant think the world of this guy and yeah. the numbers that he put up over the playoffs were 
in a word, legendary. It's amazing. So congratulations, you Nugget fans out there, all seven of you. I shouldn't have said that. But it's well, true. you know, I got we got a lot of peeps out there in Boulder. They were rooting them on here, and people are pretty excited. You saw Peyton Manning in the crowd. You sure. saw Russell Wilson, Danger Russell Wilson in the crowd. Um, I'm sure Elway was in there. Was Elway in there? Did you see him? I didn't uh, see him. doesn't mean he wasn't there. I mean, who knows? I was you know All I know is we weren't guy. there. I, I had, uh, we, you know, you couldn't make it. You you had a, a date with the TV, but we took we took the the, the risk reversal media crew out last night. Um, and I got home, and you know I had a couple of comos tequilas, so I, I sit down on the couch. And you know if it's ten thirty, and I'm I'm like anywhere like kind of sitting casual, that sort of thing. I'm I'm not off. I mean that's happening right at, at night. And uh, and uh, I was there. I watched. I I, I kind of missed like the last minute or so, so I didn't get get to see the celebration at home or anything like that. It was exciting. Like what, it, it was. You know, it's what you would expect um, from a crowd that's never won a championship before. Let's just put it that way. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. you got to act like you've been there before. But that's it. we got to go. Amanda's telling me we got to get out of here. I want to thank CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Obviously, facts at our data provider. Thank you, Coco Beware, for joining us. That was great. He'll be back again. We will be back tomorrow with the great Carter Braxton Worth of Worth charting, 1 p.m. Eastern time. See you later, folks. See you later, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.